If somebody said to me, who are you? I'd have to say, I'm a woman, a teacher, a priest, a poet. So as I read over the lessons you just heard, and I prepared to preach on this holy night, I found that I had much to reflect on, much to rejoice in, and much to identify with. Sometimes these familiar readings seem to depict such ancient, almost magical events that they're hard to identify with. Yet this past week, as I read them again, I found my own life put out before me. So let me presume that you also could hear with your own life in mind the close relevance of these scriptures. There are, as most of you know, two versions of the creation story in Genesis. And the first one, which we heard tonight, is a poem. We hear the repeated refrains of, and God said, let there be, and God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. And this passage traces with amazing accuracy the creation of the planet. First there is light, that must have been the Big Bang. Then substance, form, water, then living things, beginning in the sea. And unlike the perhaps more well-known version of the story, after the creatures, God creates not a man who names the animal and then needs a partner and gives up his rib to get one. In this first of the creation stories, both man and woman are created in God's image. That's what some of us have been trying to explain ever since. (laughs) In elementary school, a boy in my class wanted to feel my ribs. He was sure that I had one more than he did, since men had given up a rib to form women. I declined to participate in his theological research. The passage from Exodus about the red or the reed sea being moved aside for the escape of the captive Jews reminds me that this is one of the very earliest Bible passages ever translated into English. Apparently the Anglo-Saxons loved this story. The story is elemental and really the beginning of the history of the Jews identified as a people set apart And to make the miracle hit home for the people who heard the story, in the early days of of English Christianity, the Old English version tells us that the water stood up on two sides like a shield wall, the battle formation of Anglo-Saxon warriors. And then the Isaiah passage is a poem and would have been chanted in its original presentation. It reinforces the power and goodness of God who promises his people favor and plenty and reminds them that they are chosen and that God, though living realms apart from the people of Israel, will be with them and keep them alive and free, just as it tells us. Now, the dry bones story has for years bothered me. It seemed so obscurely bizarre that I wondered why it appeared as part of the Easter story. But on hearing it again and again, I began to recognize it as an episode of extravagant imagery, 
becomes like a medieval mystery play, visual, clacking, theatrical in its method of offering a metaphor of new life and resurrection. And what could be more impressive, uh, demonstrate more impressively the reality of resurrection and the reassembling of bones into life. Then in the letter to Rome, we're reminded that we've been buried with Christ and now walk in newness of life. Our dry bones are alive again through baptism. I didn't write this down, but I was thinking about it as, as we heard that passage about the dry bones and baptism and how baptism now in the letter to Rome becomes the focus not only of our service tonight. When I was a senior in college and had just begun going to the Episcopal Church, I decided to join the Episcopal Church and so I started going to confirmation classes. There were about 12 people in the class and we filled out a form the night before the Bishop was to arrive, and when it came to the line that says date and place of baptism, I went up to Father Kelly and I said, I've never been baptized. Well, it threw the class into chaos. <laughs> well, we must fix that, he said. So we all trooped out, went into the dark church. He went into the sacristy. I now know it's called the sacristy, and um, went over to the font where there was handily already water poured in. I knelt down beside the font, which was up in a corner of St. Mark's Church in Berkeley, and, and I was baptized. And the witnesses were the rest of my confirmation class. I still get an email from one of those witnesses on the anniversary of my baptism and of my confirmation, but I digress. <laughs> Finally, in this gospel incident of the discovery of the empty tomb, it encourages me and emboldens me to be present here with you and to realize that now, after all these centuries, we finally reach this night when you can all believe it, it when a woman reports that the tomb where Jesus was laid is empty. I rehearse this realizing that most of us have heard all this before. There's rarely anything new to hear tonight, but we rejoice in the familiar. We're comforted by knowing and knowing again. Jesus has been crucified. We sat with him in the garden knowing that we may be poor substitutes for the original followers who could not remain awake. We've watched and heard his trial, felt the anguish of Peter, fearful enough to deny that he was a follower, just as we may on occasion react to questions about our own church going. We've returned in the darkness of fear and rejection to tonight's new light. And as the news of our salvation spread about Jerusalem and Emmaus, and then to Rome and Canterbury, and Los Gatos, we can rejoice. We sing and our bells ring and the good news is ours to spread again. God made us in his own image. It does not mean that we are gods. It does not mean that we are miraculous disciples, but it does mean that we have the capacity to love 
and care for creation, that we have an obligation to be the people who exemplify the goodness of creation. God saw that it was good, and we are part of that story tonight. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, and we are here to help others have life more abundantly. We are creatures of God. We have fled captivity. We have followed God's Son, and now we're released to use our own rebirth for this new creation. As Father Stafford reminded us yesterday, Jesus' work was finished on the cross, and with his resurrection, our work begins. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.